Welcome back, everyone, to the Sound Logic Podcast. And today we are discussing album number 17 on Rolling Stone's Top 500 list. And I think I'll just let Nicki Minaj introduce this one. You might think you've peeped the scene. You haven't. The real one's far too mean. The watered-down one, the one you know, was made up centuries ago. They made it sound all whack and corny. Yes, it's awful, blasted, boring. Twisted fiction, sick addiction. We'll gather around children. Separate lesson. Thanks for that, Nikki. And if you're not familiar with that opening, this is My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy by Kanye West. When two white guys from Southern Ontario think about reviewing a rapper hip-hop album, we often think that we need to bring in a guest, someone who knows this genre way better than we do. Um, and so we we reached out to a couple people, and we're really excited to have my friend Daryl Foster joining us this evening. Um, Daryl, I got to know as a Penn State student while he was here working on his degree. But since then, he's moved all the way down to Florida. Um, I'm really glad he's here with us. I remember Daryl as a student who cared deeply about social justice issues and um, also was never really afraid to speak his mind to 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 sort of lay it all out and and exactly what he was thinking about and i think that's going to be an incredible gift to us here as we talk about music um daryl how do you describe yourself these days how do you introduce yourself well hi gentlemen i just want to say first off thank you for having me on the podcast um but these days uh I guess I introduced myself as Daryl. I am currently an FIU student uh, pursuing a physics degree. Um, my first degree from Penn State was actually in psychology. Uh, it's a Bachelor of Science. Both of them are going to be Bachelor of Science degrees. But um, yeah, I, down, now I'm down in North Miami uh, pursuing a physics degree at FIU. Um, coronavirus made it so that way I kind of needed to do something different with my life. I was bored at home. So I was like, you know what, let me just go back to school. Let me get another degree. Why not? I, I don't have anything else better to do. And so here we are. So thanks for having me for the podcast. And I'm super excited to discuss one of personally one of my favorite albums of all time, to be completely honest with you. We've got uh, Daryl not only for this episode, but uh, another one coming up here in a couple of albums. We'll get to that one later. Um, but before we dive into the music, one of the things that stands out to me about um, hip hop and rap music is that that language is absolutely crucial to creating a good hip hop or rap album. Um, but it's also a barrier that stands in the way of a lot of people enjoying it. Um, when it comes to the kind of language used, the uh, explicit nature of the language used, and the use of the N-word, um, it can be quite challenging for people to wrap their head around that and how it fits with uh, something being valuable. Um, I, I think we've reviewed about 70 albums so far on the Sound Logic podcast. I think this is the first one with an explicit lyric warning on the front cover. And so I wonder, um, just because of that dynamic, if we can start there, if we can talk about language and especially language that may make some people uncomfortable and how it fits with the music that we're going to be tackling. Um, Daryl, when you hear me sort of ramble on and on about all that, uh, does it bring anything to your mind for you? Uh, are there things that you want to start off by saying? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, in terms of the language, um, I think that one of the big things that has to be understood is that hip hop has always been a, as Kanye said, a euphemism uh, 
for the slave children. Um, I think that hip hop serves as a well, rap and hip hop. I think that they both serve as a foundation for people of color, specifically black people, to get out certain grievances and certain opinions and ideas that probably may be looked at um, sometimes as like questionable within the context of American society, um, particularly in the usage of the N-word. Um, I know that the N-word, the using of the N-word is probably one of the most controversial aspects of hip-hop and rap because it, as you said, um, it can create a barrier um a lot of times uh we as black people we don't necessarily want other individuals um or other races using this word in certain contexts because of the the magnitude in which it holds weight towards us in a historical context um within that same breath however we also want to allow people the freedom to kind of use whatever language it is that they you know would like to use within you know the context of the world and, and the way we exist today. Um, I think that in terms of the usage of the N-word, I think that we, I think that using it isn't necessarily okay, but it represents a perspective and it represents a big focal point for people to understand the historical context and where rap and hip hop have originated from. I mean, obviously that the N-word has been used in historical context to kind of denigrate black people to a subhuman standard. Um, but as the years progressed on, it was kind of moved in the black community towards a more, um, what's the word I'm looking for? A more positive usage or a more universal usage behind it versus it just being like something that is viewed as just completely negative. Um, I think that in hip hop, I think that it... At times, it allows us to explore the linguistics of how America has treated us as human beings. Um, a big, full, a big thing that jumps out to me, for example, right, is um, within the context of the album that we're going to be discussing, is that a line that Kanye made in his most beautiful, in his my, in his my beautiful dark twisted fantasy album was, um, "I treat the cash the way the government treats AIDS. I won't be satisfied until all my N words get it. I treat the cash the way the government treats AIDS. I won't be satisfied till all my niggas get it. Get it? For me." And I think for a lot of other black people, I think that that is one of those lines that kind of embodies the context in which we hope that rap and hip hop utilize the N word as um, to kind of provide that historical context in which how the world has kind of treated black people as a whole. Um, if you know any historical context, you know that uh, the United States government experimented on black people in a Tuskegee experiment. Um, the United States government experimented on black people with radiation experiments. And that, you know, another one, another example that I can think of is that um, women contraceptives were originated from the experimenting uh, on of slaves. Um, I think that the usage of the N-word allows us that um, extra exploratory aspect of being able to kind of get a, a get a point to other people people who may or may not be black uh to understand the context in which black people in america have been treated before um like i said i don't think it's necessarily okay to always use the word for from other races um but i think that if you try to understand the historical context 
of why that word is being used in the manner that it's being used within rap and hip-hop and how it is juxtaposed against American society as a whole. I think that that makes it uh, a little bit easier to understand and a little bit easier to approach the topic of why do black people not just use the n-word in hip rap and hip-hop but why do black people use the n-word as a whole um to refer to each other and one another and things of that nature is it fair to say that there's like disagreements uh, even within african-american uh context as well right like that's that's uh somewhat similar i guess to the the way that the word queer in the lgbt community is embraced by some and rejected by others it's not necessarily like 100 percent buy-in right depending on who you're talking to oh yeah absolutely um absolutely 110 percent uh i can be being frankly 100 and candidly honest percent uh honest with you um i have friends who um may allow their white friends to use the n-word um and like to a degree like i think that it is a very uh it is a very touchy subject because on one end of the spectrum you have black people who are like no like no other race should be able to use that word like absolutely not like um you know and then you run into the issue of well how come you know you guys can use it but we can't use it and things of that nature um and i referring back to what i said before i think that um you have to understand the historical context of where the word comes from and how it has been used and how it was used and how it is used today uh if you're going to use that word if you're going to use that word i think that in those regards you like you have to be prepared um, for certain consequences that may or may not come along with it. Um, not every black person is okay with, with you know, other races using the word. Um, and that's okay. Um, like, in, within the black community, that is a disagreement that we have that um, we must figure out amongst ourselves. Um, I think that as a whole, I think that we would prefer other races not to use it, but also that, you know, you can't really police language the way that you would hope that you can police language and that's just a that's just an aspect in a manner of society as a whole you know you can't police everything that you want to police um the, the word's going to get used the word is going to be used in and out of context it's going to be used within the context of racist using the words to refer to black people but it's also going to be used in the context of you know your your white friend who you may allow to say it if you're a black person you know just because you're just like you know like i don't really care um, I think that that disagreement between who can use it and who can't use it, I think that we as white people have to figure that out ourselves. Um, but I don't think that's anybody else's job to kind of help us figure that out. I think that we have to determine, is it okay for other people to use that word um, if we can use the word? Um, from a personal standpoint, I'm conflicted. Obviously, I want to, obviously, I don't want to police nobody. I don't want to, you know, I want to, I don't want to allow, tell nobody you can't, you know, you can't say that. But, um, in that same regards, um, I know that I have white friends who I will allow to use the word because while I may not always be okay with it, I know that those white friends, if if it came down to it, they would be behind me and they would be ready to fight for the injustices that exist out there against me as a person. Mm. Um, and I think that for me, like that's what makes me more privy to allow certain individuals to use the word. Um, for me. I don't think that you should be allowed to use the word if you haven't done your research, if you haven't tried to sit down and try to have a conversation with a black person. You don't get to use that word. Right. You don't get to right. kind of just decide like, oh, I'm going to use this word just because everybody else uses it. No, because you're using it in a regards that's like, it's a very ignorant um, understanding. It's a very ignorant 
uh, usage of the word. Um, but if you understand the historical context of it, if you can sit down, if you can sit down with a black person and, you know, you can listen to them talk about like, you know, why that word isn't okay and things of that nature. And you can listen to both sides of the coin, why you shouldn't say the word and why, you know, somebody may or may not care that you should say the word. I think that that is what most people should strive to do. They should strive to, in a sense, um, understand the context of how that word particularly is used not just in like i said not just in rapper hip-hop but also in you know the world as a whole um i think that within the context of today's society i think that that is extremely important especially since things affect uh people of color specifically black people disproportionately versus you know other races of individuals um particularly in, in regards to like police, uh, police brutality um, and the coronavirus and things of that nature. I mean, all of this stuff has been mentioned in hip hop before. So I think that once you sit down and try to do that, that adequate research and, and you sit down and you try to get those first person perspectives from somebody that is black, I think that that's when you can safely navigate what and when it is okay, if it is okay to use that word. Like I said, I'm conflicted. Um, I'm a very middle of the ground kind of person in terms of that word. Um, cause I use it a lot. I do. I use it around like my friends, regardless of who you are. I use it at work sometimes on accident. <laughs> um, and it's just one of those things. Like it's a, for me, I try to make it a positive thing. I try to make it as an aspect of like, you know, you are, Regardless of who you are, you know, you are an individual who deserves some kind of some kind of closeness and some kind of camaraderie between us. Like when I'm at work, I may say to a white person, oh, you know, oh, that's cool. You know, my N word. And, you know, it's just it's just one of those kind of just reflectatory things to say. But for me, it is one of those things, you know, I try to just make people feel as in inclusive as possible as long as you are not serving as a detriment to people who look like you yeah um and i think that that is my little soapbox in terms of the usage of the n-word in rap and hip-hop and just contextual american society as a whole yeah i have i have a story and a question so the story is from an article i read today about uh a performance that Kendrick Lamar was uh, at in 2018 as an artist we're going to talk about uh, in a few albums from now, where he was at a show. He invited a bunch of fans up on stage to sing one of his hits with him. And they were, uh, they were all joining in and there was a young uh, white girl in that group of fans. And when it came to the part of the song they were singing that had the N word, uh, he stopped her, stopped her and said, hold on. You should be censoring yourself. That's not okay that you're saying that. And she was booed off the stage, and there was a lot of controversy uh, from both sides saying, "Yeah, that's right. Uh, she should censor herself." And then the other side saying, "Well, you know, he should have known that she was up there and she was singing along, and she's a fan, and he invited her, and he saw her, uh, so he should have had some consideration for that or not had her up there." So there was both sides of it. I understand that conflict and the challenge there. I'm not going to uh, jump on either side of that. But what I want to say is that it's complicated and it's challenging for both sides. And I and I see that uh, push and pull. 
the the question I have for you, Daryl, is this: Do you have uh, do you come across any group of people in the Black community who are not comfortable with this use? Uh, and I'm not talking about white people using it. I'm talking about uh, Black people using the word. Um, and when you listen to uh, artists, hip hop artists, many of who do use this word. Um, do you find other people, I don't know if it's an older generation or maybe you're saying, no, I, I, every black person I've come across with are okay with us using it. But I'm curious, is there, are there people or specific groups of people who said, no, we shouldn't use this at all anymore. And how do you, as someone who's comfortable, who feels it's important part of your culture and expressing who you are and talking to individuals and as a colloquialism, as you say, how do you kind of engage in those conversations if they have arisen? So I'm actually glad that you did ask me that question. Um, that's actually a really, really, really good question, to be completely honest with you. Um, <laughs> the you. thing that I've come across um, is that it's typically people who don't like the word being used are typically black Americans who fall within that uh, older generation. So, like, for example, right, like my mom and my dad, they absolutely hate mm. When I use that word, they hate when I say it. They hate when I refer to my friends as it. Friends as it. They re, they hate when I refer to myself as it. Like they they just despise it. They do. Like my mom will tell me like straight up. Like you know I'll say it on. Like you know I'll be talking to her and I'll accidentally may have say it like in reference like something else and she's like you know don't use that word. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that the older black generation still holds that notion of like, and I'm gonna go ahead and say. And I'm going to go ahead and say it. Um, I think that the older black generation holds that notion of the N-word still being and still having that weight of, like, slavery behind it. Um, my mom and my dad are uh, – well, my mom was born in the 50s, so and my mom grew up during the 60s. Uh, my dad was born in the 60s, and he grew up during the 70s. Um, my mom will tell you, she, you know, she got to see when, you know uh, – not necessarily when Brown abort, when you know the Brown versus Board of Education was uh uh you know passed or whatever, but she got to see the ramifications of what life existed like before black people were more accepted, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna put those in big quotations, mm-hmm. um, quote unquote, in American society. Um, so to that degree, I can absolutely understand where the older generation is coming from in terms of why they would not want that word to be used. Um, like I said, my mom and my dad are both a little bit on the older side. Um, and like I said, they hate when I use the word, uh, especially my mom. Um, my mom grew up in New York. Uh, so she grew up around the time when they were kind of yelling at, you know, when, when you know, she's walking down the road to like school and shit like that. You know, like, and, mm-hmm. we try, and we like to think that the North is very, very, very relatively progressive. Um, my mom and my dad would tell you straight up, like, that's not a thing. Uh, my dad was from Detroit. My mom is from New York. My mom was born in Queens. My dad was born in the hood in Detroit. Um, so they grew up in an era where that word was still like, that word was still being used and it was used in regards to denigrating black people versus it being like something that became like kind of a, 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 a positive thing for black people to use um i will say that the usage of the n-word probably didn't gain like widespread like you know like oh you know like this is a this is you know this is our word now it didn't really gain widespread like feelings like that until maybe the late 80s and maybe the early 90s with the explosion of hip-hop on the scene um in the 
in the latter part of the crack epidemic. Um, but my parents growing up like that, um, they got to give, they, I think for me growing up when I did was helpful because I got to see one, how the word was used and how it, its meaning has changed semi somewhat. Um, it still has the same kind of negative connotation behind it, depending on who you talk to. But I think that generally most people within my generation, the younger generation will tell you that, Oh, you know, it's not that, you know, it, it doesn't have the same meaning as it did. Now on the flip side of that, I can absolutely understand and see where the older generation is coming from in how that word is a negative representation of black people as a whole and how it can lead to issues later in life um, that, uh, you know, um, that a lot of people don't think about. Like, I'll bring I'll give you an example, for example. Right. Um, do you guys remember when that dude, I think it was from Seinfeld, used the N-word during his uh, comedy sure thing, and yeah. it was just a big whole issue? Kramer, right? I, I don't know if that was I don't know if that was the yep, character, yep. but he uh, he used the N-word in like his in you know in his comedy thing, and um, it was a big huge issue, um, and just re- like situations like that, you realize that while the word may may have changed its meaning, um the the denigration behind it the 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 feeling of the word hasn't necessarily changed when it comes from somebody that's not black mm. that's actually i'm glad that you really asked me this question because now you have me really thinking about this, this is a, that's actually a really really good question i've never been asked that question oh. before um but yeah i think that um i I think that my parents and the older generation will definitely tell you that that word still holds that weight that it held um, in the post-slavery, post-reconstruction, Jim Crow era. Um, my family on my dad's side are originally from, from South Carolina. Um, and then my mom's side of the family, they're originally from the islands and somewhere up north. I don't necessarily remember off the top of my head, but um, I could tell you that growing up, my parents made it a focal point to make sure that they instilled into me the aspect that like the way they understood that word was that it'll always have a negative feeling behind it. Um, and, to, and like I said, to this day, my mom is, you know, an older woman now, you know, she's, Still, still spry for an older woman, but you know she's an older woman now. But even to this day, she hates when I use that word, um, and I try not to use it around her. Sometimes it pops out, um, but I think for me growing up, and I think that me being an adult now, I understand where my parents were coming from when they spoke to me in the regards of like, I don't like you using that word. Um, I don't like how that word feels. I don't like how that word sounds. Um, even online, like my parents, like they'll read like comments I might write to people and they'd be like, why are you always, you know, why are you always using that word? And I'm like, you know, it's just that it's just part of my language. And they're like, I don't really like that word like that. And I'm like, you know what? I, I get it. So I try to avoid using it around them as much as I did. I, I use it a lot more growing up because I was, I tried to be rebellious and try to be like, nah, mom, like, you know, I don't like mom and dad. I don't really care. Like, you know, I'm gonna use whatever, I'm gonna say whatever I want. But being older now, and being, I think for me, being older now and having done as much research as I've done on just Black history as a whole, um, I, I understand absolutely why my parents 
and why the older generation hates that word and hates when the younger generation uses that word. Yeah. I think there is this piece too, that in the genre, the, the voice is an instrument, right? And sometimes words are said, not just the N word, but, but any, any word can be said as a statement, you know, in the same way that like a symbol clash is used in classical music to like, get your attention. You can throw words out there to, to change the feel of a, of a track or to change the energy or the mood. And sometimes there is sort of almost a shock value um, that, that makes you sort of sit up when you're listening. And I, I guess I, before we sort of end this conversation, I want to acknowledge that piece of this as well, right? That sometimes it, it's not necessarily for a colloquialism, but to make you sit up and, and get your attention. I agree. Um, language serves as a huge crux. I think that it serves as a mechanism for people to get out certain things that they couldn't necessarily get out with using what's not mm, censored language. Is that the way I want to say mm-hmm. that? Yeah. Not necessarily yeah. censored language, but language that is uh, politically correct, right? So, like, for example, like, we often get like what you know, like with the radio and stuff like that, right? Like they'll censor words out, like they'll censor out the F word, they censor out the S word, they censor out, you know, the N word, they censor stuff out like that. But I think that in terms of that, I think that words like that hold a certain shock value. They force you either to continue listening to what you're to whatever you're listening to, or to cut it off. Yep. And I think that that is important because that serves as a way for to force people in a way to explore why and how the words are being used. Um, I think that it allows people to or it forces people more so to expand their minds in a way that they wouldn't be able to expand it when you're not hearing the word coming through your speakers or coming through your, you know, and and going into your brain. Um, I think that it's one of those things that just kind of jumps out at people. I think that people are, like I said, I think that people are linguistical creatures. I think that they like, people like words, people like hearing things and people like being able to understand things. Um, and I think that in the terms of curse words and, and, um, and words like, and, and, you know, words like the N word, they force people to kind of acknowledge the ills with language and how the ills of language are used and how it and how they can be used against people yeah. and things of that nature. Do you want to take this any other direction, Mike, or should we dive into <laughs> the music? <laughs> no, I think I, Daryl, thanks again for, for answering yeah, that yeah. so thoughtfully. And it's all, it's been questions that I've had in my mind always, but certainly listening to this music and feeling admittedly a little uncomfortable and trying to figure out how I, as a uh, white male Canadian, uh, process it, ingest it, and how do I talk about it? And uh, am I supposed to, Am I? is it okay that I like it? Um, is it okay if I'm upset by it? And really, how does somebody from that, you know, I want to find out from you, uh, a black man in America, a young black man in America, how do you feel about it? And how do you and your social group discuss it and talk about it? Uh, and then really, that helps me understand how can I can approach it. So thank you so much again for, yeah, for sharing absolutely. that with us and really, uh, honestly, enlightening me on it. 
Absolutely. It's, like I said, it's no problem at all. I think that the biggest thing that should come from discussions like this is um, just clarity um, mm-hmm. and just a, just a discussion about, you know, how things sit in the world. Yeah. Um, I think that I like I like the discussions like this, especially with gentlemen like you guys, because you guys are open minded. You guys are very uh, understanding. You guys want to learn. I think that that's the biggest thing that for me that it's always been is that I don't mind talking about things as long as you're open to learning about the context of how those things are, Um, especially in my social group as well. Um, I think that it is important to feel uncomfortable especially with music. I think that music is made to fi- music is always made to make you feel a certain way. Um, but it's also made to make you think a certain way. So I think that you saying, I think I like that you said that you were uncomfortable listening to some of it, because that means that you as a person can acknowledge that like that word and the usage of that word is wrong in certain contexts. And I think that that's what's important as long as you can understand the dynamic of how that word specifically exists within the world and just music in general and how it's used. Um, So thank you for that. I appreciate that a lot. I appreciate you guys asking me those questions. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Ben, should we just dump in right into details now and then continue talking about our personal interactions with it after? Are we at that point? I think so. Yeah, let's dive right in and see where it takes us. Details, 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 details. So we'll just dive right into it. So here's the details on this album. Uh, My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy was released November 22nd, 2010. This was Kanye's fifth studio album, and I think important to note, fifth in about seven years, and that's pretty quick for recording artists in the 21st century. This was written uh, entirely by Kanye West and a wide variety of friends and artists who helped him and producers on every track has like at least five names. So there's lots of different people, but he was obviously the driving force, producing and writing. Uh, It charted very well. It went number one in the U.S. and Canada, and the U.K. went to number 16, so not quite as popular there. Uh, To date, more than 2 million copies sold, certified double platinum in U.S., and almost half a million copies sold in the first week of release, which is very significant. Uh, It hit very hard when it came out. Um, We want to make a couple quick notes about the album and its creation. It was created primarily in Hawaii, I believe on Oahu. Uh, Kanye kind of sell, he went into a self-imposed exile after some of the controversy with the Taylor Swift Beyonce outbursts at the MTV Awards and he canceled his tour so he kind of went there to be alone and was working on this album it's one of the most expensive albums ever to be created it costs more than 3 million dollars which is very very high <laughs> I'll add just one note there Mike um he 
this the guest list on this album is extensive. We'll get to all the different names on it uh, coming up here in just a bit. But uh, from the sounds of things, he would basically like spare no cost. So like Elton John, uh, you know, Sir Elton appears on a track and just does a little bit of piano. Um, to get him on the record, he would say, all right, I've got a, a ticket for you to Hawaii. Come in and hang out for a few days, all expenses paid. So you can imagine mm-hmm. um, the record uh, label must have just been like pulling their hair out in some ways. Like you're going to fly who to what to where <laughs> like um, just to get a couple of uh, notes played on the piano. Um and and he just kept doing that over and over again. So yeah, it's 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 bonkers to think about like just essentially whatever you whatever impulse you have, let's just throw money at it and we'll put that on the album as well. Yeah, can't you just use Zoom? <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, no, I am um, um I think that that is uh, probably one of the craziest things personally that I've ever heard was that the uh the album was as expensive as it was. Um you would think, because I mean, this is at a time when most people spent maybe a couple hundred thousand dollars, right. and that's that's including everything. That's including, you know, getting features, uh, you know, getting, yeah. um, you know, it, like imagery put out, like media stuff done, and just to think that at this time, this album cost three million dollars, and there was almost little to no media exposure for it. It was a very like, uh, he kind of just dropped it one day, and it was like a huge thing. Like it was just like, I mean, granted he, like there was media exposure for it, but not as much media exposure as you might see with certain other albums that may or may not come out. Right. Um, and I think that that, and I think that that is in itself is insane to think about that. It did so well. And it was such a big deal. And it was a, it was such an expensive venture and not even just the music itself, like the, like the video behind it. Mm-hmm. The, oh my gosh. The, 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 the video itself is, in my opinion, it is arguably one of the greatest like musical feats of all time. <laughs> was making an entire music video feature length movie for an album. Um, I actually got like a physical copy of the album oh, wow. when it came out. Uh, I begged my I begged my dad for it. I was like, "You have to give me this. Like, <laughs> you have to give me this because I like everything I've heard about this album is going to be probably the greatest. Like it's going to be one of the, it's going to be his greatest piece of work of all time. Like, you know, and to this day it is arguably considered his, his greatest piece of work that Kanye has ever made. Mm. Um, so yeah, so I think it's just, I think that it is insane just in general with everything that he did around it. Um, I also think that it's insane that it came out at such a very like instrumental time within like American society. Uh, I was in high school at the point, like I was in my what sophomore year of high school when this came out. Um, And even still to this day, like I still listen to this album all the time. Like it is still by far, like I've said before, one of my favorite rap albums of all time, just off of the subject matter, um, the, the, the lore behind it Mm -hmm. and the controversy that existed as a whole behind it. I found the album to just be mesmerizing in how it sits within the context of American society today. Hmm. Oh, that's really, that's really fascinating. Uh, and I can't wait to talk more about that and, and how this holds up against his other albums. Cause that is a question I have for later. So Ben, you mentioned that there's so many people involved in this right now. I'll just point out a few and that's that there's many others who are on this 500 list included uh, as guest performers on this album, such as Beyonce, Elton John, Drake, 
Jay-Z, Alicia Keys, and MIA, and there's many other well-known artists who who are not on the 500 list. Uh, John Legend, for one, uh, who are on this. So, yeah, tons tons and tons of people involved, uh, totaled of 28 different musicians, 18 different producers, uh, and it is absolutely a masterpiece of production in those regards. Um, ben, can you talk about Good Fridays? Because I feel like I don't know anything about it, and you'll breathe a little more life into that. Sure. So um, before this album came out, and Daryl, you might be able to talk about this even better than I can, um, since you were uh, you know, really into the fandom of this at the time, but Good Fridays was Kanye's attempt to like get some of the just piles and piles of music that he was creating at the time out into the public. Um, he was sensing that the digital medium was allowing um, music to be shared and passed around and to, to sort of um, counteract that piece that you were talking about, to not put too much money into the promotion of an album, but like try and build a buzz from underground. He set up this, um, this system called Good Friday. So every Friday he would send out um, a new piece of music, uh, often from these recording sessions that, that uh, spanned a significant length of time. Um, so the lead up to the album included 15 different songs released over 15 weeks. They weren't all tracks that wound up on the album, but often like a, a would reference something else that they were doing um, gearing up towards the album. And um, I, I think this was kind of like a, it was a pivotal point in, in music consumption. I remember right around the same time, um, maybe a few years before even, or, or maybe a similar, uh, uh, we had things like, like Radiohead uh, dropped an entire album as a digital download and you, you would pay whatever price you felt like it was worth. It was just like a, uh, an open uh, uh, pricing. And I remember uh, Weezer created an album in which they would send tracks out and and have fans vote on whether or not they thought it should be included in the final track list. So it was like this like key moment in American context, like you were saying, Daryl, but also in music context, like people were trying to understand what this new medium was going to do to the industry. And, um, and Kanye's effort was this Good Fridays. Um, I, I think, I don't know the exact number, but I, I want to say like four or five of the eventual tracks that we hear um, were sent out as these sort of free samples early on. And a couple of them wound up becoming singles. I think Power might be one that that got sent out initially as a free release. And then the producers were like, whoa, 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 that's too good. Let's pull it back. <laughs> they took it off the website and it became a single um, in the sort of lead out to the album. Uh, yeah, I was going to say um, it was Power and then it was Monster too. Monster was okay. the big one that got taken off the website. Because okay. um, it... It peaked at number 18 on the billboard. Uh, yeah, it peaked at number 18, um, but it was taken off the website uh, because, like you said, the producers were like, whoa, 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 hold on. Like, this can go on the album. Um, so they took it off the website. Uh, but, yeah, you were right in terms of uh, the four songs that were – four or five songs that were all put on the album. Uh, you got So Appalled, Devil in a New Dress, uh, Monster. Um, the remix for Power wasn't on the album, but – they released the remix for Power before the actual song Power was on the album. So I guess you could consider that the context of, you know, it being on the album, I guess. Um, but yeah, Good Fridays were probably one of my favorite parts of like my sophomore year uh, of high school, um, just leading up to it. Uh, around that time, I was listening to a lot of Wiz and a lot of Kanye. 
Um, that's when I, I feel like as a person, I was really kind of like cementing myself into more of the individual I was going to be. Um, but yeah, I think that uh, my favorite, I think probably my favorite track from the Good Fridays was the Christian Dior Denim Flow. And to this day, it is still like one of my favorite, like favorite multi-person tracks that exist out there that is not like a general release track. Um, a lot of people haven't heard it. And I'll play it sometimes randomly. People are like, what, what song is this? And I'm like, you've never heard this song? And it's, it's, and it's weird to think about sometimes that, like, there are songs that, like, people have just never heard. Um, I remember randomly hearing it on Good Fridays one day. And I was like, yo. I was like, this song, right? Like, this song is it. I love the, the, the beat for it. The beat for it did it for me. The, the, just the amount of people who were on the track did it for me. Um... It was just a, like, I liked Good Fridays because it was an all-around, like, for me at that time, uh, it represented a a very different time in life. It represented a simpler time in life. And at a time when I could just, you know, I could just listen to music all day if I wanted to. You know, I can't really do that now. You're not going to be an adult. Um, it helped me submit myself as the person that I was going to be later in life because it really got me more into exploring music as a whole. Um just the amount of people that Kanye would have on his tracks and just the amount of the amount of stuff that he was releasing and being a part of just kind of made me just like because around this time he was also I think if I'm correct I'm pretty sure his Nike Yeezys came out around this time as well some something around this time something like that around this time um but I think that for me the Good Fridays is what really helped cement Kanye as one of my favorite artists of all time uh he's He's a little bit on the on the fringe now. He's not like you know. He he's kind of lost his spot. Um, but but I will say that at the time growing up, the Good Fridays and the subsequent release of this album for me were some of the biggest musical moments of my young life. To say I was made had to have been let's see sophomore year of high school. I would have been like maybe like 15, 14 years old. And to this day, like I've said, I, I still listen to this album like almost every single day. Uh, yeah, that's that's really cool. And I'm glad that um, uh, that was a big part of how you consumed it, because I think that gives us a representation of how people consume this album. And that's such an important part. I mean, when you're 15, like that's everything is the biggest thing. Everything you hear, all the music, everything yeah. you do, it's the biggest thing in your life. Nothing else is ever going to be bigger in your mind as a 15 year old. So I think it's another reason why it's so great you're here with us and, and why this was such a big deal for you uh, in your formative years. Yeah, man, absolutely. Um, like I said, it just, it, for me, this album and just, um, Everything Kanye was doing at that time for me, and not just Kanye, but the just uh, black culture as a whole, uh, cemented me more in being more comfortable as like a a person of color in America. Um, it made me feel more. Can't think of the, what I want to say right now, but it made me feel more. Um, it made me feel more of myself. Like it made me feel more as a as a person, yeah. I guess per se. Uh, one of my favorite parts of every episode is when we talk about the album artwork, and this is probably one of our most interesting <laughs> discussions here. It's going to be about this album. Uh, okay, so we need to give a few details before we start talking about the content. So the final, uh, there was a few different releases, first of all, but the final. 
uh, artwork was designed by a painter named George Kondo. And it, um, it's a, oh, how do I describe this? Okay. It's, it's, a <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, a, an interpretation of Kanye West, um, with, a, a another individual who's, a like an angel with no arms, um, and they're not clothed. And this, uh, artwork was, was banned very quickly and was replaced either by a pixelated version of the same image or another image that he had created for the album, which was a painting of a ballerina, which you'll see in that music video as a big part of kind of the art and the expression, which Kanye was, was a big part of a driving force in that, uh, there's speculation that, uh, Kanye intentionally wanted the artwork to be banned, the original artwork. And I don't think that he's uh, confirmed that verbatim, but but that's kind of the idea. That's the buzz around it. George Kondo made five different covers, uh, which were all included. And maybe uh, that was in the, the physical copy of this that you have, Daryl. Did you have all the, were, were they all just stacked in there, different pieces of paper, or were they in the foldout? How was it presented? Uh, okay. So when I actually got the album, I actually got the pixelated version. Okay. Um, I don't remember if the uncensored version was released. It might not. Um, but I know for a fact, I know for a fact that I got the pixelated version Mm -hmm. and I know for a fact that the ballerina came and I know that the ballerina, the ballerina was on the, um, so it folded, it folded out. If I remember, if I remember correctly, because this is, you're, you're making me reach far (laughs) back into my memory banks. Um, it folded out, and you had the main cover. <laughs> you had the main cover, which was the pixelated image of the devil and the angel. Um, mm. And then you had on the back side of it, which was the uh, the fold about the the folded out part. You had the ballerina. Um, I'm not gonna lie to you. I don't think that I actually saw the uncensored version until I downloaded the actual album. I think from like LimeWire. Okay, <laughs> like uh, that's how I got the uncensored ver- like the uncensored picture was. I think I downloaded it from LimeWire. I'm pretty like if I if my memory serves me correctly, I'm pretty sure I downloaded it from LimeWire, and that's how I got the uncensored version. Right. And I remember printing the uncensored version off and pasting it over the the censored nice. version because i loved the un because i because in my head looking at that uncensored version i was like okay this is this is exactly what um this is exactly what kanye was going for i can see mm-hmm. exactly what he was going for he wanted some shock value behind mm-hmm. this album and I loved it. I loved this. I loved the uncensored version. To this day I I still think that the uncensored version of the artwork is some of the most controversial but greatest like album artwork that you can possibly <laughs> think of. I on to to me, I honestly view it in the same category as uh the Beatles when they're when they're walking across the street. That's the kind of like that's the caliber of artwork that I view this particular album uh in terms of and how and where it would uh fall in in a hierarchy of um music. Maybe not maybe the album not per se itself, but I can say that for a fact that the the artwork itself was some of the most jaw-dropping and controversial artwork ever. And I loved it. Did it also include Daryl there's another image a painting that I think was used for one of the singles, but I don't know if it was included in the packaging with uh painting of just a just a head with a sword and a crown on it with a sword through it um 
and I don't know if that's supposed to be Kanye as well, but it's like a black person's head uh, with a sword coming down through it, which was like extremely graphic. Yes. Um, so if I remember correctly, it was supposed to be Kanye. Um, okay. And that album artwork was actually on the inside of the front cover. Okay. So like when you so like when you opened it up, right there was so you had the album and there was the pixelated image. Yeah, there was a pixelated image, and then once you opened the album up, on the back side of this pixelated image was the was the the cover was the cover of the the sword going into the black person's head. Oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, uh, yeah, well, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what else to say. I mean, he definitely was, it was his, his vision, his purpose, um, to be something that was a little outrageous. And he obviously had a connection with this artist who could deliver that. Um, and I think I want to agree with you, Daryl, that it's, it certainly stands out. Um, I think it's iconic and I think it will stand as iconic except that i think a lot of people get hung up on it whereas nobody really gets hung up on the abbey road crossing but um i think that it absolutely 100 percent encapsulates the vision that kanye had for this album even that image not just the fact that it's controversial but what it's portraying is it's dark and twisted and in a, some way beautiful <laughs> uh but uh, definitely, I think it makes sense for what's happening on the album. Yeah, and I, I wonder too, like if the pixelated version actually becomes like e- even more risque. Like, I don't know, it kind of is like scrambled porn, right? Like you can tell there's something awful going on there. Yeah, um, <laughs> um, that uh, you know that, that like still makes it kind of intriguing. And I think if you are if you're a young kid, like seeing something pixeled out like that, you're like, what is that trying to hide? Like, why, why are they doing that? Yeah. It can't just be abstract, like, uh, art, artistic blocks. There. Yeah. There's something going on. <laughs> um, so I, my first impulse was actually like, you know, since the pixelated version is what you see on store shelves or when you go to Spotify to stream the album, um, or really any digital platform, you're going to see the pixelated one, but, but maybe it's also still got this like, mystique that's drawing people in to sort of you know go down that rabbit trail on wikipedia to see what all the other album covers were or you know whatever um it's controversial enough i think to like to keep that momentum going so my i want to tell you that my son asher saw me working on this and saw the doc with the pixelated version thank goodness or maybe i was i was uh looking at it on on spotify i was listening to it and it has that and so he like right away asked me like uh what is that and i was like uh well what does it look like he's like uh looks like mm, is it a couple people i was like well i mean it's a kanye album so he's there's probably one person there is kanye and there's another person Oh, are they on top of each other? I was like, uh, <laughs> yep. You know, we're going to, we're going to move on. We're going to move on here. <laughs> uh, that's the album cover. It's actually hilarious. <laughs> it's really funny. To hear you say as a 15 year old, this like made a big difference in your life and to still today hold it up as one of the greatest albums of all time. Um, I think it's easy for people who only know Kanye from a distance to, 
um, to know the radio hits and and kind of assume that's all there really is here. But there's so much more, and there's some really long stuff here too. Like the the total album length is uh, over an hour, thirteen tracks. Um, what what for you, Daryl, makes this a great album? When you look through this track list, um, are there some songs in here that you're just like, oh man, the reason that I think this is great is is for these tracks or is it just the collective whole that you think like what he's crafted here is iconic because of everything? <laughs> I I think that uh, I view the album as a whole, as a whole piece with everything included behind it, the artwork, the visuals from the, from the, from the music video movie that he made, the songs themselves, I view as the whole album as a whole as a masterpiece in musical creativity um particularly though the songs that have always kind of stuck with me the most were gorgeous uh devil in a new dress and hell of a life um i think that these songs jumped out at me because they each embodied a different aspect of Kanye's persona at that time as an individual. I feel like this album personified all of the best and worst parts of Kanye. Um, I feel as though this album kind of gave us in uh, uh, a look into the the nature of the beast, if you want to say it right. Um, so I think that's a funny way to rephrase that because if you look at the album cover, there's a devil and uh, an angel on it, right? So I think it's interesting to be able to see the nature of the beast in Kanye and how he was as a person at this time. I think we, I think it's an interesting avenue in which we are allowed to see kind of the most private parts of an individual that's a very private individual, if that makes sense. Um, I love this album for me because... At the time, like I said, I, I was a I, I was a huge Kanye fan growing up. Like a huge, I'm still a relatively big Kanye fan now. I just you know he's kind of fallen out of grace with me uh, with everything else he's done. But here nor here nor there, um, I felt as though this album helped to put the man that I enjoyed listening to as an individual and that I enjoyed like his demeanor as a person. I think it helped put this man in more of a humanistic light for me. Um, it showed me that it is okay. I think for me, at least for this album, I think it showed me that it is okay to acknowledge the negative parts of you as long as you don't let those negative parts eat you alive. Um, and I think that with this album, that's what I got from it the most was that it personified the negative parts of Kanye, but it also personified the best parts of him as well. Um, from his production to his musical talent as a whole, like with rapping and things of that nature. Um, but then also with like, you know, the humanistic parts of him, right? So like, this is right, this is in the latter part of him dealing with Amber Rose. This is after, you know, this is after his uh, his breakup with his fiance, you know, and stuff of that nature. Um, I found myself being drawn to him as an individual because I felt as though with Kanye, he said what he wanted to say but he also gave you the parts of him that he doesn't really want people to judge him for as a person. Um, at 15 years old, that was big for me. At 15 years old, you're going through a lot of changes in life. You know, 
you're you're trying to navigate how high school is and you know you're trying to navigate who your friends are and how the world exists around you and like what it means to be you and who you're going to be as a person right and i felt that this album for me like i've said before kind of helped put it into a perspective of you deal with your issues but you don't ever let anybody make you feel as though you're not good enough of, of a person to do whatever it is that you want to do um like i said i i love this album i'm still to, still to this day i listen to this album pretty much like all the time um the three songs like yeah i just like i said um the three songs that jumped out at me or the three songs that always jump out at me that i've always that i'm always catching myself listening to are gorgeous devil in a new dress and hell of a life um and i think that for me those three songs kind of personify the different aspects of kanye's character that exists from the narcissism to him being a black man in america at a time when a black man was elected uh as president you know he's president um you know with barack obama being president at that time um i think that it helped me as a person solidify more of who i wanted to be as an individual especially with being like outspoken like even with like the whole taylor swift controversy and all that things of that nature like i think that it helped me become more comfortable in voicing my opinions and voicing who i am and just being comfortable as a person as the individual that i have to exist as in my skin and i'm the only person that can exist in my skin like that um so yeah um that's that is a, a major reason why like i love this album to this day I'm so glad to hear you say that. And it's helpful for me in processing uh, Kanye specifically, because I, I think about the way um, he's been portrayed over the last few years, especially his sort of like um, ponying up with Donald Trump and stuff like that. Uh, the narcissism of his personality almost makes it hard to like know what to do with everything else. So I, I see him as this like absolutely brilliant producer on the one hand, but someone who, who's just so perplexing from like everything else. <laughs> and, and so to hear you talk about the different Kanye's on this album, I think helps me see through some of that murkiness for me. Like, what do I do with, there are still some very narcissistic tracks here. Um, and, you know, I, I, I feel myself like trying to paint um a story on there that maybe isn't there like oh that's just the sort of early glimmers of like what he is now today uh, if only we'd known sort of like the trajectory that that would take him to this weird spot that we're in now and that's really not true and that's dismissing him as like you know a caricature too right like it's dismissing that he really does bring this much bigger picture to the table um and this album i think is a testament to that so i'm, I'm that's really helpful to hear you say that, Daryl, and, and helps me sort of process some of my thoughts about the album as well. I mean, don't get me wrong. Kanye's still an asshole. He's an, he, he, <laughs> I, I don't know if I can say that on the podcast, but he's still an asshole. But um, nah, he just, you know, I just, I, like, just at that time, at, and, yeah. and still to this day, it's still a polarizing album for me. It is still, like I've said, it's still one of the, sure. the best rap hip-hop albums that i can arguably say i've ever heard in my life and i've listened to a, i've listened to a lot of rap and hip-hop albums from you know everything from biggie and jay-z and big l to you know juice world and lil uzi and and, and people of that nature right yeah. but to this day like i don't think that anybody's album necessarily holds the amount of weight that my beautiful dark twisted fantasy 
does mm. in terms of polarizing um, American society as a whole. Okay, so I hadn't heard this album before at all. This was my first time with it, and I'd never even heard any of the songs. Um, but I was really, really excited to hear it because I know what a impressive and sizable catalog Kanye has. So the first thing that I want to point out is that when I hear an album and I hear something that I can tell is not that artist, um, like whether it's jazz music or rock music or whatever, I'm always on the internet. Like who was that? What was that guitar part? What was that voice? Who is that singing here? Um, and so for this album, I mean, I had to have the Wikipedia Wikipedia page open like the whole time because I'd hear another voice and be like, who's that person? Who's this? What's that? And all these different people on it. So for me, it was like kind of scratching an itch in terms of how nerdy I am with music. Um, so as I was researching that, it was uh, drawing me in because he had some artists on there that I really like from genres that are outside of hip hop. Like he's pulled all sorts of people in. So for example, the very first track, uh, I'm hearing dark fantasy. I'm like, okay, let's check out what that sample is. Well, it's from a song by a guy called Mike Oldfield. Well, I don't know who that is. So I looked that up and the vocalist is John Anderson. Well, I know John Anderson. He's the lead singer of yes. One of my favorite prog rock bands from, uh, the seventies and eighties. And then, so I'm like, okay, well, that's really cool. I like that. And then I'm hearing something on power. I'm going, what's that? Well, that's a sample from uh, King, King Crimson, which was prog rock from the late 60s. And then I'm hearing on another track, uh, Hell of a Life, I'm hearing uh, something from Iron Man. Holy crap. This is Black <laughs> Sabbath. More, you know, hard rock. And it's like, hang on a sec. Is Kanye like secretly a prog rock like uh, <laughs> super fan, and he's pulling in some of my favorite <laughs> music? But I'm like, you know, if you're if you're an Elton John fan, I mean, Elton John's on here, like it's all this other stuff, plus all these other things, you know, from pop. He's got Alicia Keys and Rihanna and Fergie for crying out loud. Like everybody's on here, um, and I think that that, or at least for me, that made it a little more accessible. It's like, okay, I might not be into this genre. I might not even be a Kanye West fan, but he's put things here that I can associate with. Was that on purpose or was it just because he had a ton of money to play around with and could bring in whoever he, he heard something on the radio goes, Oh, that's cool. I'm going to fly him into Hawaii. Uh, (laughs) You know, like for whatever case I loved it. And it was super fun for me to research that alongside of really enjoying some of the music. Um, I want to talk about just a couple songs that really, really jumped out to me. Uh, number one, I really liked All the Lights. Um, it is one of the biggest songs I've ever heard. Uh, it, the sound doesn't get a, much bigger than that in my mind. Yeah. There's so much happening with the horns, and it's just like right in your face. I'm surprised that wasn't used um, as the opening single because it's such a huge song. Maybe, Maybe because he is a little narcissistic that because there's so many other people on that he didn't want (laughs) kind of the attention turned away from him i don't know i'm making that up i didn't read that anywhere that's just uh, speculation on my part but i love that track and that to me just shows what a great producer he is um and then there's other songs i do want to talk about uh monster very briefly because that opens again with all it's just vocals it's just processed vocals but it sounds like a full band um, and I really, really love what he's able to do there. 
very very talented again in in kind of the after production with and all the people he brought in and smart move on having Nicki minaj in because she was exploding onto the scene at the time she hadn't even released her album yet uh yet she was becoming huge um and he got whether he saw that um or was helping her out or saw that she was just going to be a massive success um he's got her in on a couple tracks which is great and the last thing is another uh, another group that i really like um and my sister's got me on because she's a big fan and that's bonnie bear and uh i heard uh i heard the the song lost in the world and i thought that's that sounds familiar. And I looked it up and the whole opening is, is a Bonnie Vare song that I wasn't familiar with, but when I heard it, I was like, Oh wow. Um, and then now I can't listen to the Bonnie Vare version without hearing the beat right, <laughs> come right. in. Cause that's like, that's like a club track. Like that's a, as the kids say, that's a banger, uh, that one. <laughs> Anyways, um, there in summary, and I'll, I'll give someone else a chance here, but in summary, um, there is so much on this album that was catchy that I loved. There were a few other things that were more challenging. There's a spot in the middle of the album, I want to say, from like track 8 to 11, where you feel the tempo and the length of the songs. Everything really slows down. And at first, I couldn't figure out why I was having a hard time listening to the whole album start to finish. And then I finally figured out today that you got this section here that intentionally really slows down. And I think that's absolutely brilliant. It changes the whole pace till we get again into Lost in the World with that big kind of beat to, and then the spoken word at the end to tie it off. So, yeah. anyways, that's me. Uh, ben, you take a crack at it, but that's kind of what I got out of it. Yeah. So, uh, a little bit of backstory for me. Um, Daryl, you don't know this about me, but Mike and I picked sweet corn down in southern Georgia and, and southern Ohio and then in our home area of Ontario for many summers uh, through high school and college. And um, we, we have a friend who's really into rap and hip hop, uh, specifically Tupac, but would get into other stuff as well. And I roomed with him for one of the summers and got like way more of an overdose of uh, of that kind of music because he wanted to watch those videos all the time. And so uh, that sort of rolled into an appreciation for um, Kanye's earlier albums. I think I think the ones that I was into at that time were um, College Dropout and uh, Late Registration. And so I was like kind of, there was a moment in my life where I really, really appreciated him as an artist. I loved the sort of production side of things, the way that he was able to weave sound and, uh, and voice together. And then I'm not sure what happened if it was just like I stopped sharing room with someone who cared as much as, as Aaron did um, and, you know, went off and did my own thing. But by the time he sort of made his his weird uh, MTV stumble there with Beyonce and Taylor, um, I, I think I had sort of already started to, to cool on Kanye. And that was sort of a, a turning point for me to be like, I don't know what to do with this guy anymore. Um, Somehow, though, this album, uh, you know, should have made a bigger impact than it did. But but it was, I was pleasantly surprised that uh, I know a decent number of these songs um, just from like absorbing them, I guess, through, uh, you know, whether it's working with college students or when I was a youth pastor working with with high school youth. There was enough sort of in the atmosphere that, that uh, there was a number of familiar tracks here. And it reminded me of this time when I did really love uh, what Kanye was doing. 
And, and the power that he still really holds to like create these songs that sort of transcend um, culture in really interesting ways. Um, power specifically, like that song, at least the first few bars before it gets into, um, you know, his verse, uh, are it's like part of almost every single Penn State uh, athletic hype uh, pregame warm-up time right now, right? Like, it's just like bigger than the music. And, um, and there's a couple of other things, like the the sort of uh, opening opening line that can we get much higher riff, it, it just seems like it has its own life. Uh, you know, he's, he's created things here that are just like, bigger than the music um and i think that's that's so interesting i i think uh i think at this stage of my life as sort of like a a a person who who's gotten a lot softer and slower with his musical uh likes and appreciations and also gets a healthy dose of like disney soundtrack that my kids are are listening (laughs) to on a on a daily basis i'm not really sure where kanye fits anymore um, but what I can really say is that he is just this incredible producer. I look at the list of like everyone who's involved in this and think like just from a management perspective, what a daunting task it would have been to like to to figure this all out. And and I think it like a lot of the great artists that we've already talked about on this podcast, it's clear that he's got this vision in his head and what his albums are is his attempt to try and get that vision out. Um I'm thinking of back to when we talked about Bruce Springsteen's Born to Run album. And and it said that like he took like almost two years to write it. And he just kept getting more and more frustrated because the sounds that he was hearing in his head, he could never get out onto the onto the actual recording. It was just bigger and better in his mind than he could ever like actually reproduce. Um, and he sort of ended up sort of settling for the, the final cut because uh, he just knew we're never gonna quite get there. Um, to the perfection that I can hear in my head. I think Kanye on the flip side is like, you know what? I'm going to do this perfect and here's how. And he's just going to pull in, you know, he's going to spend $3 million to make the, the thing in his head actually come to life. Mm-hmm. And um, that's kind of a, a amazing to, to think about that dynamic. I absolutely agree. Um, I think that uh, in terms of this album, I think that um, for me, I think that this album was the culmination of every single album that Kanye has produced before and even after that. Um, For me, I think that even afterwards, like a lot of his albums, like even though he tried to transition into certain other things, I think that they still have that very like my beautiful, dark, twisted fantasy. Let me expose myself. (laughs) as the individual I am kind of feel to them, especially with like the life of Pablo and Yeezus. Um, You know, I think that, uh, and I agree with you. I think that Kanye is a perfectionist. I think that he's a narcissist. I think that with (laughs) this album in specific, I think that what he was going for was just the aspect of being able to put everything that he had ever felt and everything that he would, everything that he had experienced and everything that he was going to experience um, into an album. I think that it embodied his hypocrism. I think that it embodied his narcissism. I think that it embodied his creativity as a, as a musical genius as a whole. I think that it embodied just the, the things that he had dealt with in life prior to, to my beautiful dark twisted fantasy. And I think that 
it was for him a showcase of not just his musical talents but his humanistic talents as a whole um i think that it kind of like i've said before i think that it kind of gave us a a view into the world of a maniac to say so the least Mm. um and that's the best way i can really sum up like that like just just that as a whole um just that i think that kanye at that time breathed music and i think that for him he wanted to put out his magnum opus um Mm -hmm. if the mona lisa is leonardo da vinci's greatest piece of art then i in my personal opinion my beautiful dark twisted fantasy is Kanye's magnum opus because <laughs> to me I don't think that any album before that or after that necessarily feels the same or brings the same feels as my beautiful dark twisted fantasy does yeah um especially for somebody like me who grew up like who grew up listening to it like who grew mm-hmm. up kind of like Seeing him transition from, you know, the college dropout to late registration to graduation and 808s and Heartbreak Kanye to Yeezus, My Life of Pablo. And uh, I don't even remember what his album after that was or his his gospel album. But I think that (laughs) My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy embodied everything that he was and that he was going to eventually be. And I think that it served as... um, what, as a foreshadowing mechanism for the Kanye that would eventually exist and the Kanye that had existed before that. Um, and that's just my personal opinion on the matter. Um, I, I hate to keep kind of harping on this, but what do you make of his weird entry into um, politics right now? Like, and, and is that, <laughs> does that shape your uh, appreciation for him as an artist? Uh, do, are you able to like keep this separate from that? in some ways or or is there is there is it making it weird (laughs) um i will say that uh his interesting foray and his interesting movement into the world of politics um definitely made it hard for me as a person to kind of want to listen to him um (laughs) i think that it made it hard for me to listen to somebody say slavery was a choice but in the same regards, maybe 10, 15 years before that, you said that George Bush didn't care about black people after Katrina. Right. Um, and the same dude that said on a track, you know, I treat the cat, like I've said before, I treat the cash the way the government treats AIDS. I won't be satisfied to all my N-words get it. Um, and just thinking about the subject matter that he dealt with before and thinking about the subject matter he deals with now, um, I think that, yes, you should absolutely separate the man from the music. But at times it is hard to separate that man from the music because your politics and your political opinions and how you feel about how things should be done definitely have uh, an influence on the kind of music that you make and the kind of music that you do. Um, like I've said before, uh, this is it's it's always interesting to me because I'll tell people, right, for example, right, when people get in my like if people get in the car with me, like, you know, I'll I might play a Kanye track, but it's always an old Kanye track. It's never a newer Kanye track. <laughs> um and I'll tell people straight up, you know, like I, I can't really, you know, it's hard for me to listen to Kanye now because uh his political opinion and the things that he thinks and the things that he says um definitely rub me the wrong way. And I think for me, like that's what made the fall of grace for him from me 
as an individual kind of hard um mm. because like i said like i like growing up like i looked up to him i looked up to him as a as an artist i looked up to him as you know just a a a human a humanistic individual like somebody who embodied what it meant to be like uh vulnerable and like a human towards people um yeah. so i think that for me like i think that his politics make it hard for me to listen to him because I'm not going to lie to you from an emotional standpoint. It makes me kind of sad knowing that one of my favorite artists transitioned from, you know, being very, very pro-black, very, you know, I'm going to criticize things that don't have to like, you know, things that are, are detriment to black people. I'm going to criticize that stuff and I'm going to be for it um, to, you know, aligning themselves with somebody like Donald Trump. Um yeah. And I mean, granted, he's not aligned with him now. You know, he's he's definitely stepped away from the political spectrum as a whole. But even with like the gospel stuff, like it's just it's one of those things. Like it's just I hate to be that dude because I know that <laughs> rap and music is m- m- maturation. I know that you have to grow, you have to change, and you have to do things differently. But I think for me, it's just sometimes it's just the way he's gone and the way he does things and, and his music now. It just it doesn't feel like the Kanye that. I used to look up to and I grew up with. Um, and that's not to say that his music is bad. It's just to say that I can't necessarily subscribe to it as an individual anymore because it doesn't make me feel the way I felt. And I mean, granted, I I, I don't expect yeah. it to make me feel the way I felt when I was 15, yeah. but um, it doesn't give me that same feel as how it did. Even in like my, like my later, like my college years, like, you know, my first college years, like I was listening to Kanye, like my beautiful dark was a fantasy all the time. Like you could ask anybody who would come over my apartment. I was always playing these tracks. Like I was obsessed with that. Like his, his demeanor, his style, the, the, the way he, the way he made the culture feel made me, a fan of him. The way he made yeah. me feel is what made me a fan of Kanye. And it yeah. just, it sometimes it just, it makes me sad and, and it disappoints me because I don't feel like Kanye is for, or Kanye's music nowadays necessarily is for the culture that he built up as a person. Like, it's, mm-hmm. like you got to think like Kanye grew up on wearing fitted clothes, you know, looking good being eccentric you know things of that nature right like the entire the entire rap and hip-hop culture in terms of the way we dress and in the term and in terms of the way people dress in in that you know genre is based off of you know the way kanye was mm-hmm. you know dudes weren't wearing polos and and <laughs> and you know fitted shirts in in 2006 you know we still wearing big baggy clothes you know we wearing the 3XL shorts and the and the air forces and and kanye brought a different view that didn't make it didn't make us look so so uneducated um, and I think that that's what appealed to me the most was that I didn't feel like Kanye made me feel like I felt like listening to Kanye didn't make me feel like I was like uneducated. Um, Kanye wasn't a hood dude. I w- I'm not a hood dude. I'm not, I'm not from the ghetto. You know, I was born, I was, you know, I got, I got a good home. I was raised in a good home. Um, and listening to Kanye, you know, I felt like I could relate to that. You know, I couldn't relate. I, I could relate to Jay-Z being a black man, but I couldn't relate to Jay-Z because, you know, Jay-Z sold sold drugs for 13 years of his life. You know, that's yeah. where Jay-Z got his start from was from selling drugs and other rappers like Biggie. Um, 
and stuff and rappers like that you know 50 cent like you know they all like all those rappers that i used to listen to like yeah they're hood dudes but i wasn't a hood dude you know Mm. kanye made it cool and kanye made it a thing to be like you know not a hood dude in the rap world um yeah and it just it makes me sad like i said it makes me kind of sad sometimes because i don't feel like kanye exists for that that culture of like just uplifting just it doesn't matter just everybody like with kanye you know you know you got everybody on kinds of tracks you know you got everybody from 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 bon iver to jay-z and and rick ross on tracks together you know like it, it mm-hmm. and stuff like that like he made it cool he made it cool to do things that were out of the that were out of the box and i miss that um I miss that about Kanye the most, I think. And I think that that's why this album holds so much weight for me even today is because for me, I feel like this was one of the last times, aside from like Yeezus and my, The Life of Pablo, um, I feel like this is one of the last times where I felt like Kanye really embodied what he started out doing um, as, a, as an artist and as a person. In your opinion, you haven't really said this yet. Why, to you, is this album so much better than all the other ones that came before and since? Uh, We know that the last few, you're not a big fan because he's changed his kind of political views. Um, But you haven't really told us what makes this one so much better. You know, he was vulnerable. He was transparent. But there's some big hits on some of the earlier ones. So what is it about this one that makes it so much better for you? Okay. So I'm glad you asked me that question, actually, Mike. I, I appreciate you asking me that question because that allows me to clarify a little bit more um, my opinion <laughs> on just how I feel about this album as a whole. Um, I think that, for me at least, I think that um, the reason why I view this album in such high light is because of the transitionary period, one, that I was going through as an individual, but mm-hmm. also the transitionary mm-hmm. period that Kanye was going through as an individual. Like I've said before, this album was in the 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 after parts of, you know, him getting, you know, him and his fiance breaking up and then him and Amber Rose breaking up and then his mother dying, you know, with you know, and things of that nature. Mm-hmm. Um and while I don't I don't necessarily deal with the same aspects in which he was dealing with in terms of how it impacted him, um for me, this was a big transitionary period in my life too. You know, like I said, I'm, I was 15 in high school, 15, 14 in high school when the song came, when the album came out. Um, so you know, this is a big transitionary period for for a young person, right? You're trying to find your way in the world. You're trying to figure out who are you as a person. Like, who are you? Who are you going to be for the next 15 to 20 years of your life? Who is the person that you're going to be? Um, and I think, at least for me. Um, I think that the like the reason and why this album holds so much weight is because that was such a big transitionary period for me. Mm-hmm. And Personal. at the time I'd already been following Kanye. I had been getting more and more into shoes. I'd already been into like sneakers and things of that nature, but you know, him doing the Nike Yeezys was a big thing for me. And him, you know, just being so eccentric like jumped out at me. Being eccentric for me was what really jumped out to me. It was a, and it, it was an eccentric masterpiece it was just a it was a rambling of thoughts all put in a very cohesive and streamlined thought pattern um and it just it everything about the album for me kind of just jumped out 
every from the sounds of the album, from how the sounds of the album sounded, from the people that he got on the album. I mean, like I said, he he got everybody on the album from Bon Iver and like you've said, like you like Mike, like you said, like Fergie and you know, you know, Elton John to 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 Jay-Z and yeah. Rick Ross and, and RZA being on the album. Like, and for me, like that was like that was huge because there wasn't really at that time for me at least there wasn't really mm-hmm. any other artists who were doing things like that and i think that as a personal opinion i think that like i've said like i said i think that this is his greatest album because it embodied everything that he was before the album with you know college dropout and being a producer on you know the blueprint for jay-z and things of that nature and late registration and graduation and 808s and heartbreak but it also embodied who he would be afterwards. Um, And it made, for me, it made the hypocrisy of human existence make a little bit more sense. Um, It made it that you can, that you as a human being are going to be a hypocrite at times. You're going to go back on things that you thought before and things of that nature. You're going to change the way you think. Um, and I think that this album, like while it may not have had the same big radio hits impact as some of the other albums that he had, um, I think that this album holds the most weight because it was the most impactful for probably for him as an artist. Um, and like I've said, for me as an individual, this was his most impactful album because it just, it embodied all the human aspects of being a human being at times, whether it was the hypocrisy of, you know, wanting your cake and eating it too with having like multiple women, but also like mm-hmm. not wanting your mm-hmm. woman to be out there by herself um, and do her own thing. But also with the aspect of exploring who you are as an individual and exploring who you are as a person and trying to better understand how you exist in the world as an individual. Um, and that for me is why I would rank this as his best album, because the way this album made me feel, I don't think that I've heard an album since then that's made me feel the same way. Wow. Yeah. Well, thank you for, for clarifying that. And I was just curious cause you're a big, you were a big fan of his music and that's, uh, so interesting. And I love hearing how one of the reasons this is important to you because it's personal. Sometimes it's not just about how great in quotations an album is. It's about how it, how it affects us in that time, in that moment. And, and this, you know, brought you through that point to the point that you still have it today and are still listening to it. I think that's fantastic. Um, and uh, before we move on to some of our conclusions uh, we want to remind everybody that we have a playlist on spotify called sound logic favorites and we always ask our guests to pick two tracks that they could put on that playlist so daryl if you could pick only two tracks to go on our playlist from this album which ones would you pick oh from this album only two yep just two <laughs> i would probably have to say gorgeous and lost in the world awesome um, just because they both are two very, very different tracks, but they're similar. They're two very different feeling tracks, but they're very similar in the subject matter in which mm-hmm. they're examining. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that that's, those are the two tracks that I would pick. 
One of the things that we uh, do each episode is talk about the relevancy of these albums. Um, Daryl, you've spent a good amount of time talking about the tension between Kanye as a person and the, the sort of appreciation of this music. Sometimes this conversation is a little bit different because the album is so old that it's hard to know like how it's being heard today. But at this one being just 10 years old, um, it might make this conversation a little bit less difficult for us today. <laughs> um, <laughs> I I think it's really interesting to, to hear this album now um, because I think it's... it's uh, it's still really, really a fun record and a, a deep record and a really complex one. Um, but to hold that up with the persona of, of Kanye is, is a real challenge. I, I do think, though, that any good um, music, any good celebrity causes you to think critically about yourself. And I think even so I, I think one of the most challenging things about Kanye for me as a minister is the some of the sort of like prosperity gospel that he's been getting into lately with his, uh, with his faith talks, right? Like God has blessed him with millions and millions of dollars. Um, you know that, so, but when I hear him say that stuff, it causes me to then turn inward and think like, okay, so how do I fall into that? Like, what do I believe about this? And I think his album does the same thing. I don't always agree with it. I sometimes wish it was done a different way, but it always challenges me to think about what I hold to be true. And I think that means it's great. And so um, this, el this album in particular, I think is still relevant for the way that it challenges me to examine what I believe and who I am. And so for that reason, I think it's absolutely still relevant. Sound, you know, it, it's clearly still a sound that, that can um, capture people's minds. It doesn't sound dated at all because it is still so so recent. But um, what about the two of you? How do you how do you think about this album when it comes to its relevancy today? Well, I want to say first that um, I think that again, being only ten years old that music like this, again, Ben, you're right, is still being made, and you can hear his influence across popular genres uh, through the last 10 years and even today. The one challenge, and, and again, I'm echoing what you said, Ben, is I think it's challenging when we hear this and think about him today. I know for my family, my wife and my daughter, I put some of this music on, and they're like, kind of perked there's, oh, what's that? Oh, it's Kanye. As soon as I said his name, they were turned off <laughs> because that's again wrapped up in who he is today often what people do in their personal lives it affects how we view them even when we're consuming their art so i think that it's still relevant yet this is a, a very interesting one we haven't really had this yet ben where his purse his his personal life i think is conflicting not necessarily with the relevancy but i guess in a in a sense if if something becomes not um the word I want to use, uh, not palatable in a certain aspect, I guess it can fall from relevancy. So I think in music, I think people would still be using this in production and in uh, uh, as their influence. But I think that in pop culture, it could lose a bit because people have been turned off by Kanye as a person for many reasons that, that you've touched on, Daryl, and that you've touched on Ben and for my you know my wife and my daughter they see what he's done and said and who he's aligned himself with in the last few years and that turns them off uh so uh that's the only thing I would add um but Daryl what do you think about the the relevancy of this album uh 10 years in 
realistically, I think that uh, a lot of artists these days, um, they bite off of this album in particular because of the magnitude of how it made probably them feel growing up. Um, I think that the weight of the album still holds true. Um, but like you said, Mike, I think that a lot of people are probably relatively probably turned off to the artist because of who he's aligned himself with. Like I've said, like I've said before, Kanye has fallen from from grace with me in terms of like, you know, love like I love his music to death. I do. But it is hard for me at times to want to listen to it because to a degree, like his standpoints don't align with who I am morally. And while that may have changed, you know, um, mm-hmm. over the past few months, uh, I think that even with this, even today, it is still that album in particular, this album in particular is still relevant because it will always be viewed as Kanye's best album. Um, I think that most people would generally agree that while, a lot of his stuff is is phenomenal. I think that my beautiful dark twisted fantasy will hold a lot of weight in a lot of people's minds as the best piece of work that he has ever created. Um, just with everything surrounding it, from the three million dollars spent on the album to the to the star power on the album to the visuals of the album and the controversy behind the 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 imagery of it and the movie that he made i think that it is all still to this day one of the most polarizing and fascinating pieces of musical creativity that we have had the luxury of being able seen made in our lifetime um we got to see the transitionary period from 808s and heartbreak to my beautiful dark twisted fantasy and from my beautiful dark twisted fantasy to everything afterwards. And I think that that in itself is why the album holds so much weight because it is his magnum opus. As I said, Um, it is his greatest piece of work. It is like I've said before, it is arguably one of the greatest rap hip hop albums of all time. Um, And I think that that'll, it'll, Stand the test of time and it'll still hold that way even 10, 15, maybe even 20 years from now. It'll still be arguably one of the greatest mm-hmm. pieces of musical creativity, if not in the music world, in the world of rap and hip hop, for sure. Mm-hmm. Well, let's uh, move right into the position on the list. This is number 17 on the greatest 500 albums of all time. Daryl, how do you feel about that ranking? Higher, lower, just right? What? What's your opinion on that? Well, we should also say that it came in at number 353 on the um, 2012 list. So this is quite a jump to go from okay. 353 all the way up to number 17 here in 2020. From a personal standpoint, I think that it probably the, – the spot it's in right now is probably good. Um I only say that because there are hundreds and thousands of other artists out there and who knows what they may or may not release, right? But there have been artists before mm-hmm. Kanye's My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy who, who who released better things. Arguably, the blueprint would be probably arguably better than My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy. Some people will argue it because, you know, mm. of semantics between, you know, Jay-Z and Kanye. But I think that where it sits at is good and it 
and it can fluctuate within maybe five or five to seven different spots. I think personally that it could possibly be within the top 10 greatest albums of all time, but it may, like I've said, it may also fluctuate in between that 17, between 17 and 10, just because um, opinionated thing, opinions and things of that nature and how people feel about everything else surrounding, not just the artist, but uh, the music itself uh, will, will change obviously over time. Um, like you said, it was at what number three something, mm-hmm. number three hundred something in 2012, and now it's at number seventeen. Um, I think that it will con- like I think that it may go up. I don't think that it'll drop back down at any point to any any lesser number than seventeen. But I think that it may increase in value in terms of you know how people view this album being one of the greatest albums of of all time. Um, so I mm-hmm. think that. To, I guess to sum it up, I think that 17 works, but I also think that it could be moved within roughly s- seven albums or so. I think that it could break that top 10. Um, will it break that top 10? Maybe. Maybe not. But I do <laughs> think that it could one day break that top, break that top 10 for sure. And I think that um, yeah. When it's all said and done, I think that Kanye will get his roses for this album as being one of the greatest pieces of musical creativity that we, like I've said, in our lifetimes will ever be able to get to see made. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with that, Daryl. I'm on board. Um, when I think about you know the last, let's say seven, sixty to seventy years of music, um. 30 of those have been, I'll use the word dominated, if not dominated, at least heavily occupied by hip hop. At least 20 of those years have been dominated by hip hop. So this is becoming now a genre that has a really big part in the music of the last, again, I'll say 60 years because really this list covers mostly 60 years. It goes a little bit beyond that, but not too much. So, that being said, um, there should be hip hop represented high up on this list. So there, sh- if s- some of the best hip hop albums should be in the top ten and twenty, we've uh, this is the uh, third hip hop album we've talked about on this list. It took until uh, into the forties on the twenty twelve list before they hit one hip hop album, and that was uh, what we just discussed as number fifteen on this list public enemies it takes a nation of millions to hold us back so now by the time we get to 20 albums on this list we're going to have talked about four hip-hop albums um lauren hills miseducation public enemy and then in a couple episodes we're going to talk about kendrick lamar's to pimp a butterfly so i think that that's uh, appropriate considering the massive influence uh, and success hip-hop has had in the last 30 years uh, 30 plus really, but I'll, I'll just round it up or round it down a bit to 30 because it was really, you know, created in the late eighties, but really hit the mainstream hard in the nineties. So, um, I'm, I'm okay with 17. Uh, you could probably convince me a little higher, a little lower either way, but I'm fine with 17. Uh, what do you think, Ben? Yeah, I like this album being here. Um, I'm curious to see, you know, we don't have, uh, 
rapper hip hop in the top 10. And I'm, I'm curious to see like Daryl referenced it. It's a little terrifying to think about another list coming out because we just got our original plan derailed by this 2020 list and have had to start <laughs> over again. So we don't really like to think all that much about getting a new one in maybe another seven or eight years. <laughs> but, um, you know, yeah, I, I bet that we'll see uh, rapper hip hop show up in the top 10. And um, oh, it'll sure. be interesting to see if it's Kanye or someone else who cracks that uh, the next time that a list like this is put together. So, yeah, I'm fine with it here. I, um, I, I wouldn't have been surprised if it was a little bit higher. And I, I, I think I've learned a little something here this evening about why this one in particular um, rises to mm. the top of Kanye's uh, catalog as well. So um, then, yeah, thanks Daryl for, for helping us out with that. Oh, no problem at all. And one of the things that we like to talk about is whether or not there are other albums for this artist on the top 500 list. And um, so there, there are a few, we, uh, I think the last list just had a couple of Kanye albums on it. Yeah. The last list had my beautiful dark twisted fantasy, the college dropout and late registration, but in the reverse order that I read them, uh, okay. <laughs> which is interesting. And I want to say, it's interesting to note that when that album, that list came out in 2012, um, uh, my beautiful dark twisted fantasy had only been out for two years. It was a very new album. So I think it's significant that that was put on at all because it got on, but graduation didn't get on. So yeah. on this version, what we've got is uh, we've got five more Kanye albums that we can talk about. The next four we're going to talk about are his first four albums in order. So we've got <laughs> the college dropout at 74 late registration at 117 graduation at 204 and then 808s and heartbreak at number 244 and then we get to talk about one more and that's Jesus at 269 so um yeah lots more Kanye on this list coming up it's going to take us a little while to get to some of these but um yeah we've got five more chances to to talk about them and uh Daryl if you want to join us for one of those uh, just let us know it'd be fun to have you back on the show in a year or two when we get to the next one. Oh man I would absolutely love that man just you know just let me know I'm pretty much free <laughs> all the time if I'm not at work then I am doing schoolwork so I would this this was nice this was great I love this um I enjoy Talking to you guys for sure. Uh, I enjoy talking to you guys about you know music. I love music, so I'm a huge music person. Um, but yeah, you know, just just let me know for sure. I I absolutely love to be back. Thanks awesome. so much. It's been a gift, and it really has helped us understand, um, you know, really more about this genre and especially about this album. So we really really appreciate it. It means a lot. And what do we got coming up next time uh, here on the podcast, Mike? One of our favorites, I think. Yep, next time we'll discuss album number 18. This is Highway 61 Revisited by Bob Dylan. Definitely one of our favorites of all time. <laughs> Isn't that right, Ben? Perfect. Yes, one of our, for those uh, people who may have just recently found this podcast, uh, the running joke when we were going through the 2012 list was that everything on the list should have been at least one higher because Highway 61 should have not been on the list at all. So it'll be, it'll be interesting to uh, revisit this one in uh, uh, another episode and, and <laughs> see if our thoughts have changed at all. Right. Well, I want to take one more opportunity to thank our very special guest, Daryl, for joining us. Thank you so much. Thank you, Ben, for 
also joining me here and we want to thank you listening at home for taking your Thanks time so out of your day Joe. to listen to the sound logic podcast we will talk to you next time thank you so much thank you so much for having me gentlemen i appreciate it a lot more than you guys know if you like what you hear subscribe on your favorite podcast app and write a review send us a message at our facebook page on instagram or through our sound logic podcast twitter feed Thanks for listening.